Welcome to Teacher Quit Talk. I'm Miss Redacted. And I'm Mrs. Frazzled. Every week we explore the teacher exodus to find out what, if anything, could get these educators back in the classroom. We've all had our moments where we thought, what the hell am I doing here? From burnout to bureaucracy to soul-sucking stressors and creative dead ends. From recognizing when it was time to go to navigating feelings of guilt and regret afterwards, we're here to cut out the gaslighting and get real about what it means to leave teaching. We've got insights from former teachers from all over the country who have seen it all. So get ready to be disturbed. Join us on Teacher Quit talk to laugh through the pain of the U.S. education system. We'll see you there. Hi, I'm Frances Callier. And I'm Angela V. Shelton. And we're Frangela. You know what you need in your life? Hmm. The Final Word Podcast. Yes, you do. That's right. It is the final word on all things political and pop cultural. Where we make real news real funny. Where we inspire you so you can hashtag resist. Subscribe and get a new episode of the Final Word Podcast each week. It's the news we think you need to hear. That's right. We think you need to hear it. Okay? Yeah, it's what we say so. That's right. And because all we do is give, every Thursday you can listen to our hysterical podcast, Idiot of the Week. We round up the stupid because you know what? Somebody has to. Okay. All we do is give. Дамы и господа, добро пожаловать в Prevail. Это второй сезон нашей борьбы с криминальными сволочами. Ваш ведущий Грег Олиар. I'm Greg Oliar. This is Prevail. Welcome to the program. We've got a great show from the new podcast Doomsday Watch. Arthur Snell is here. But first, the most important, pressing topic of the day. The thing that trumps all else in the news. I'm talking, of course, about Chris Christie. Did you know there was a show on this week about Chris Christie? Did you know Chris Christie is on CNN? Did you know Chris Christie has strong opinions? Chris Christie has a book. Chris Christie has things he wants you to know about. Chris Christie, I mean, it's Chris Christie for fuck's sake. We all care so much about Chris Christie, icon of the children, matinee idol, super smart guy Chris Christie. Have you ever stopped and thought, what's it like to be Chris Christie? What's it like to leave the governorship of New Jersey with a 9% approval rating? What's it like to close off a beach and just sit there like a beached whale in the sun in your beach chair with your family with no one around for miles? What's it like when that picture appears in memes everywhere and will for the end of time? What's it like to not like a mayor of a town in northern Jersey and say, you know what, to fuck this guy, I'm going to close off three of the four on-ramps to the GWB just to screw this guy. What's it like when something like that happens? What's it like when you're involved with that and you let your underlings take the fall for it? What's it like when you can give your cell phone, which has like important information about Bridgegate, to your lawyer and he just kind of makes it disappear? What's it like when that lawyer then goes on to become the director of the FB fucking eye? What's it like to be so close to Donald Trump, this great man, this great intellect, Donald Trump? I mean, what's it like to be that close to Donald Trump all the time to the point where you're helping him prep for the debate and he gives you fucking COVID? What's it like to sit in a hospital bed at Morristown Memorial Hospital, occupying a ventilator that could have gone to somebody who wasn't in the room with Donald Trump who gave them COVID. What's it like to survive that? What's it like to have lap band surgery and then have it not work? What's it like? 
What's it like to be Chris Christie? What's it like to be considered for the vice presidency and then be like, nah, fuck you because Jared doesn't like you because you put his father in jail? What's it like to be Chris Christie, to not even make it into the administration? Is it, is it horrifying? What's it like? What's it like inside the psyche of this great man? What's it like? I want to know. Like, when the paparazzo come to take pictures of Chris Christie, what's that like to be so famous to be Chris Christie? Please tell us. CNN, please. There's not enough Chris Christie coverage these days. You know, if there's one thing missing in my life, it's more Chris Christie. And thank God for CNN. Thank God for CNN for giving us all the Chris Christie we can handle and then some. So thanks, CNN. Thank you, Chris Christie. Oh my God, Chris Christie, Chris Christie, Chris Christie, Chris Christie, Chris Christie, Chris Christie, Chris Christie. All right, you get the point. Fuck Chris Christie. I hope we never hear from him again. That's what I have to say. Arthur Snell, he was on the podcast before. Great guy, really smart. He was a British diplomat for years. He's been all over the world. He's now the man, one of the managing partners at Orbis Business Intelligence. And he's got this new podcast called Doomsday Watch, which you should absolutely subscribe to. It's wonderful. We talk about that. Um, we talk about a lot of great stuff in this, in this conversation. We talk about his podcast. We talk about, is the United States in the midst of a second civil war? We talk about encroaching autocracies in governments around the world. We talk about China and Xi. We talk about Taiwan. We talk about Brexit. We talk about Boris Johnson. We talk about Northern Ireland. And then we talk about the British royal family because, of course, we have to. <laughs> anyway, it's a really uh, fun, interesting conversation. I always say interesting so much. I go back and edit these, and I'm like, God, if I had a shot of whiskey for every time I say interesting, I'd be hammered before this thing was over. So, you know, hey, if you're inclined to play a drinking game, it might be a, a, a nice way to pass the time. But um, great talk with Arthur. Really happy to have him here. Again, his podcast is called Doomsday Watch. Check it out. We'll be right back with Arthur Snell. And now, a sneak preview from next week's episode of HBO's Emmy-winning series Succession. Featuring the trademark crackling dialogue the show is known for. In this scene, siblings Kendall and Shivroy probe the depths of their emotions as they discuss who will succeed their father, Logan Roy. Is it okay? Okay. Are you okay? I'm okay. Is it good? It's good. Are you good? Are you good? I'm good. Are we good? We're good. Are Shiv, you... are we good? We're good. We're good. We're, we're good, we're, yeah? We're okay. Are we good, yeah? It's good. It's good. Are you good? We're okay. It's okay. Shiv, I think it's going to be okay. I think it's good. We're okay. We're okay. It's okay. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. We're good. 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 We're good. Good. Okay. Okay. Good. That was a sneak peek from Succession. And now, back to the show. Arthur Snell, welcome back to Prevail. It's great to be back. Thanks for having me. You have uh, a new podcast called Doomsday Watch. So it's a very, uh, it's a pretty upbeat title, I have to say. That's right. Very rosy, you know, ro- yep. rosy glasses. But I, I, the show is not doom and gloom. We have people over here that are known as Debbie Downers on Twitter and stuff like that that are, oh, this is terrible. There's no hope. There's no point. And I want to say, you know, straight away here that, your podcast is not that, despite the title. It's it's really about pointing out things that we should be paying attention to, rather than ah, fuck it, all is lost, right? Would you agree? Uh, or you, yeah. yeah, no, that, that's absolutely right. And thanks so much for that characterization. Funnily enough, when just as we came out, I was 
listening to someone talk about George Orwell's book 1984, which of course again is a you know a very bleak uh, book. But as as this person said, it was the the you know the act of writing a book such as 1984 and the act of of offering people a warning is itself an act of hope because that's the point you know where the, the the purpose of this podcast is not as you say to make everyone just give up hope and and sort of you know reach for the the gun and the glass of whiskey it's actually to uh to say look this is what is happening we've got to be realistic about it and then we can decide if we're going to do something I think the tagline at the at the end of the trailer says it best, or maybe it was in the email. I can't remember. It's just you know, sign up now before it's too late, or subscribe right. before it's too late. Like that, it's, <laughs> exactly. it's very uh, tongue in cheek. Clearly, as we're recording this, there's only been one episode that I've been able to listen to, but I I, I will say um, it's very good. I think it's really done well, and uh, the format. And I don't know if you follow it throughout, but you're kind of the the narrator, and you um, it, it is that part is scripted, and you tie together interviews with experts which are really um they're more like monologues or very short uh lectures i guess uh by people who know what they're talking about on the subject and you kind of paint the picture that way um i think it's an interesting way of of approaching it which i I, maybe other people have done i haven't heard it done quite this way before and um i think it's really good so what, what was the impetus behind this what 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 inspired you to do this podcast in this moment well, th- thank you very much. And yeah, so the, the impetus, um, it goes back to uh, Podmasters, which is a podcast production uh, sort of house in the UK. They, they, they have been running two uh, regular political shows, which, you know, are on the kind of liberal internationalist side of the, the, the fence here in the UK. And, and that's The Bunker and another one called Oh God, What Now? And, and they're, both, they're both popular <laughs> and they've got a bit of a following um, but quite focused on on UK issues. I mean, not uniquely, but but uh, but to a certain extent. Um, I I, with my background in the foreign service and having worked a lot overseas, was keen to see if we could uh, do something um, that that took a much more global perspective. But also, yeah, to adopt a different style. And I, I'm I'm really glad that you kind of. Uh, appreciated the way we did it so we we've gone for this kind of documentary style it's not two people having a discussion which is a great way to do a podcast we're doing it now so you know i'm all for that but we've gone for something a bit different it's a more of a kind of yeah documentary style and and particularly this thing about giving experts lots of space because one of the challenges with the the world we inhabit at the moment this sort of high tempo 24-hour news social media 240 characters on a tweet. Everybody has got a hot take, which they can say in 20 seconds. Um, but what we're trying to get at is some really big, complicated issues, and that you need to give people time and space, and not edit them and chop them up into little sound bites. So that that was sort of w- w- where we took that. Well, that's I like that. Um, that's that's what I'm trying to do on this podcast. I you know. It- when I'm in the mood to pontificate, I write my column. I don't pontificate here. I let you. I yeah. let you come on and do it. It's much more. It's much more fun this way. <laughs> my my um, pleasure. <laughs> so um, you've been on before, and we discussed at length your your background. But for anybody that missed that episode, which you should go back by the way and download and listen to, it's really interesting. You've been all over the place. In the foreign service, you've been in. You've been in Iraq. You've been in Afghanistan. You've been in Yemen. You've been in Zimbabwe. Um, you were 
what in Trinidad, right? You were the, yep. the ambassador. That's right. So you've yep. been all over the world and especially in these places of great conflict. Um, so uh, what did I miss? Tell us a little bit more about your background or I probably hit everything and ruined my question. Well, that- yeah, well, you, I think you got most of it. I had the, the bits in between where I was home-based, based largely in, in London. I was a lot of that period working on counterterrorism, And so to some extent, uh, that shapes quite a lot of where this podcast goes. So I, I joined the Foreign Service in 1998, um, showing my age there, I guess. And uh, that was a very different era. That was the era, of course... The nice little gap between the end of the Cold War and before 9-11, when everything was great in the world, you know, the worst thing that could happen was to have a US president who had a few issues with his private life. But that, you know, that that that, that was the biggest deal. Um, and and of course, the 9-11 attacks changed everything. And it's not just about the attacks themselves, which were, of course, hideous and the impact of them, particularly on New York, uh, hard, hard to overstate. But the the ramifications, the way in which uh, Western nations, particularly the US and the UK, um, responded. And, I, and I'm not, I don't say this to criticize, it's completely understandable that, um, that America would, would need to get to the bottom of who had led those attacks and take some uh, appropriate action. But we are, you know, 20 years on, literally, more or less on the 20th anniversary, we saw the end of that big arc of history, which was with the headlong departure of, of US and, and other troops out of Afghanistan. And so I think that that period of 20 years has strongly shaped my own life in terms of the work that I did, but also it's it's much more importantly shaped global politics, sort of geopolitics, global security. And a lot of the issues that we are seeing unfolding at the moment in some way are related to that. So even where it's not necessarily obvious, you know, that the the political instability that has hit the US, uh, there are aspects of that which are rooted in the difficulties that America encountered in its response to the 9-11 attacks. One of the things I was going to ask this later, but I'm going to I'm going to talk about it now. Um, one of the experts in the podcast, the first one talked about the correlation between losing a war, losing an expensive war, and the subsequent collapse of that government or that society, or at least the the, the beginning of the decline of it, and listed yeah. a couple of examples, you know, the Soviet Union and Afghanistan for one. And he yeah. talked about the US war, specifically in Iraq, because Afghanistan, I feel, in the moment and even in hindsight, I think we had to go. I think that that was the right move. I, you know, I agree. We, we can criticize. And I think we did when you were on last time. You said that was over by December. We went in in September. It was over by December. You know, we can criticize what happened and how the war was executed. But the decision to go to war in Afghanistan, I think, is perfectly justified. The Iraq war, even in the moment, we all knew it was it was batshit. I mean, that they worked the that they um, and by they, I mean, Bush, Cheney, Rumsfeld and that crew. They decided and had it in their head that they wanted to get rid of Saddam Hussein, which, you know, horrible dictator, but it has real world ramifications to get rid of him. Um, and then they went and did it and, and came up with um, some kind of bullshit excuse to do it. Oh, he's got nuclear materials, which I think even the acting wasn't even that that great, even at the time. And yeah. but compounding the error, we go to war and simultaneously there's this 
Bush and Cheney do this enormous tax cuts, which, you know, usually when countries go to war, they raise taxes to, you know, pay for the war. They do the opposite. So the war costs a trillion dollars. The tax cut starves the, the revenue of about a trillion dollars. And that, I think, is what the, the expert on your, on your show was talking about, this, this in, in, incredible loss of, of finances for this period of time. Um, I know I just thought it was very interesting. It's not something that had occurred to me um, in terms of our, th that war specifically being yeah. somehow responsible for Trump and the decline. Yeah, I mean, I think I think and what's interesting is you get a lot of ramifications that that come out of it, which aren't there's obviously the direct ramification of the chaos in the Middle East and, you know, thousands of young Americans who, who died there and others who life changing injuries. That's easy to see. But it's those those ramifications that, that are, are less immediate, but still so important. So the one you've talked about there, the economic one, then there's the question of um, trust, the simple fact that uh, certainly in the UK, trust in governments dropped significantly at that moment. I wouldn't be surprised if it was similar in the US. So when we, we reach 2021 and you've got a huge proportion of the population prepared to believe the QAnon stuff or to believe that the election was stolen, the big lie, um, you know, some of that may have its roots in, in that terrible decision of 2003 to, to invade Iraq. Yeah, because they, they're selling us bullshit. You know, they're, they're yeah. telling us something even they know really isn't true. And exactly. Yeah. You know, that, that's how Trump started. The first press conference that Trump's press secretary, Sean Spicer, did, he went out and said it was the biggest inauguration crowd ever. And we all knew that it wasn't. And it seemed yeah. kind of silly at the time, but he was asking us in hindsight and, and maybe even in the moment to believe something that we know is is not true. Um, yeah. You heard about this QAnon business in Dallas, right? Did you hear about that? No, the, tell me. Okay, no, oh, this is wonderful. The, the, the QAnon people went to Dallas, Texas, to Dealey Plaza and gathered because they thought that JFK Jr., who's been alive this whole time, was going to come back and reveal that he was the vice president, Trump was the president, and oh, that yes. there was going to be the, the reversion right. of government back to the... Yeah, yeah. and no, I did hear about that. And so this yeah. is the, the JFK Jr. who ditched his plane tragically on the way to Martha's Vineyard 20 yeah. years ago or something. Yeah, the same one. Yeah, not, <laughs> right. I mean, that's the, the, the mind rot of people who's yeah. gotten that. You have to believe that he's alive. I've said this in the pod before. You have to believe that he's still alive and that he yeah. would support Trump and that his the the place of his reveal would be like the off ramp where his dad got shot. Where his dad like it's was just, murdered. It's yeah. people's brains are completely are, are completely fried. So yeah, I just wanted to make sure you heard it because it's it's really no right. Just, yes, no. Yeah. Now you, I I think I'd blocked it out of my mind because it seemed so bizarre. I I couldn't quite you know I couldn't quite lay down the memory. <laughs> it's uh you you were right to to cast it off. Um, so <laughs> the first episode in in Doomsday Watch is about the United States, which we like. You know, you start off with a bang. You know, you you put the the, the radio hit right up front. I like that. Yeah. So, so you talk in in it about there being a second civil war and. In a sense, there is. In a sense, there isn't. You know, do you, I mean, do you really think that we're in a second civil war over here? Or are you just saying that to kind of, you know, to to drive traffic? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, it's it's. I mean, you rightly I, I identified that it's it's like any any good uh, you know album a group brings out. You've got to have a real banger for the first track, right. otherwise, no one's going <laughs> to buy the album. Um, but. What I found very interesting is that when we at the beginning of this process, and it, it took us a little while, we were we started working on this actually the middle of this year. So it, it's been a drawn out process. Uh, sorry, there's my my dog getting overexcited. Um, 
The dog knows. The dog knows. This the is all oh, the good the parts. Dog, the dog knows that the, <laughs> the, the civil part. war is, is, is about to start. Um, um, so yeah, no. So we when we started, I think it felt a bit like a slightly far out idea. And then we started talking to people, some really serious people. So one of the people on on the pod is David Kilcullen. For those who aren't familiar, he he started out life actually as an Australian military guy, an infantry officer, and ended up as the chief counterterrorism advisor in the um, the Obama, no, sorry, the the Bush uh, State Department at, at, in in the second uh, term of, of George W. Bush. So this is a man who is a real expert. He's an academic. He's a he's a writer. He's also a soldier, um, and and he used that phrase. Now I think. Uh, and then the other person who I wanted to bring in here, because it was quite timely, is, is I think it's about a month ago that Bob Kagan, who, of course, is a very big figure in the US, a sort of um, uh, foreign policy scholar, expert, Washington Post columnist, wrote a very, very long, long form article in the Washington Post, all about the kind of collapse of political norms in America. And he doesn't explicitly use the term civil war, but he talks about the possibility of a kind of fracture of the country into, into warring uh, divisions. So one of the things I would say from the outset is, of course, um, being American, if you say civil war, everyone thinks back to the 1860s, as, as you would, of course, the biggest war that's happened in your country's history. And you're talking about uniformed armies, pitched battles, and, and, you know, it's a sort of epic 19th century conflict. Uh, I certainly don't think that is anywhere in your future. And, and it would be, I think, pretty ridiculous to suggest that. But of course, if we think about what civil wars look like now in the modern era, they look very different. Let's talk about Iraq again. Iraq uh, kind of began to atomize into places where you had militias carrying out hideously violent acts on other people who they regarded as outside their group. You had a central government that was sometimes in league with those uh, militia groups. You then you had other forces, whether it was the army or law enforcement, whose whose own affiliations would would move over time. And it seems to me that that kind of uh, framing is a possibility in the case of 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 America. Now, I say this with a certain amount of trepidation. One, the biggest point is that. For very good reasons, Americans don't want to have some Brit lecture them on what's happening in their country, which again is slightly why we 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 gave as much space as possible to the experts. You know, it it it's not me me kind of delivering the talk. It, it's it's others. Um, but the other and the other thing of trepidation is that I I I genuinely don't want to exploit uh, the kind of political instability that your country is going through because my own country, you know, this. this Let's start from a really obvious perspective, which is that yes, we have different aspects. You know, we don't have we don't have uh, many people owning weapons in this country, which is a relief. But we have all kinds of our own issues, including a blatantly um, uh, corrupt prime minister who you know is is frankly brings shame on our country on more more or less a daily basis. So I'm 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 not speaking from any position of of kind of a sense of, you know, uh, and sort of looking down on America, quite the contrary. It, it, it comes back to that point about uh, the warning is there as an act of hope that people will, will um, you know, will take note. Well, I think I want to I want to talk about your country in a little while because I have questions because <laughs> I always like to hear your, your take on what's going on there. Um, 
I, I don't I, I'm making I'm teasing you a little bit about Second Civil War, but I, I don't think it's necessarily wrong. I mean, I've written many times that that the January 6th insurrection was the, the worst attack on our democracy since Booth shot Lincoln. I've used yeah. that almost since it happened. And I believe it's true. I believe that when Lincoln got shot and died, that set set in motion lots of really bad things, including the guy that took over for him, Andrew Johnson, as president, completely yeah. screwed up reconstruction and we're still feeling the effects of that and if yes. lincoln had been alive at that time would it have been perfect of course not but it would have been better than it than it was and we're yes. still reeling we, we as americans we don't like to look back on ourselves and say oh yeah we made a mistake there we made a mistake there could have done that differently we like yeah. to pretend that we make no mistakes and that we're awesome all the time which in this case is is maybe not um you know not such a great idea and yeah. Your point about what civil wars look like now, I think is a good one. One of the differences at that time is that um, in the 1860s, you had states where there were slaves and you had states where slavery was uh, you know, against the law. And those yeah. were the countries that were, or, or the, the states that were forces that were fighting against each other. Now, certainly some people in the South didn't want slavery and some people in the North did, but for the most part, it broke down along those lines. Now yeah. it's not like that. I mean, we look at someplace like Texas and people think probably from afar, well, they have this crazy governor, they have this crazy legislature, they're doing this batshit autocratic stuff. Everybody in Texas must be a maniac. And that is not true. Texas no. is very, very good at repressing vote. Um, at, they have uh, very low participation in votes relative to other states. And in fact, if everybody voted there easily, Texas would be blue right now, and we right. wouldn't be having these problems. So I think one of the, one of the, the civil war elements is that it's not that everybody in Mississippi is bad and everybody in New York is good. It's that there's yeah. people down the street from my house here. And I live in one of the bluest, most democratic towns in this entire country. There's still MAGA people here. There's still people driving around with their flags. Somebody tried to put a Trump sticker on my car outside of my house. Mm -hmm. I mean, this stuff happens here and that's how it is everywhere. It's overlaid. Yeah. And when you have yeah. a civil war like that, it becomes very, very, tricky to navigate i think and potentially yeah. horrible yeah yeah definitely and of course again you know the, the the word war can be applied in different ways you know that there are there are many um aspects of conflict which don't involve people shooting guns at each other right. and and of course there's also you know if we're looking for kind of historical analogies that it's not like the, the, the American Civil War just started one morning after everything else had been fine in the 1850s. It, there was that buildup of, of increasingly extreme political tensions, increasingly people either ignoring the law or, or deciding that the law could be manipulated to serve their ends. And again, I'm, I'm not just saying that history simply repeats itself because that, that's not how it works, but, but it, we, we seem to be on this pathway. And in a way, the question is not... Um, well, we're in a war, you know, let, let's start fighting. The, the, the question is, we seem to be on this track heading in that direction. How can we turn off the track? And that's really, I guess, the important point. One of the things that's happening now, and you, you, you'll speak to this more than, more than I can, because you have such a, a great background in international um, politics and, 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 and uh, affairs, but it feels like there's also now a shift in polarities in, in the, what the countries are doing, that there is this ascendancy of, of autocracies and you know in Russia in the Middle East like places like Saudi Arabia and UAE and how China fits in is sort of a little bit suspect but that seems also to be part of that 
And some of the countries in Europe, like Hungary with Orban, are being drawn into that. Do you see this shift happening or or do you think this is just kind of a cycle of, of, of things and how it normally has played out? No, I think there is a serious shift. And I think that, and and you won't be surprised to learn that, that we, we look at some of these issues in, in subsequent episodes, but that uh, again is, is both feeding off and feeding into the issues that you're facing in the US at the moment and, and equally here in the UK in that the a lot of the kind of norms and values of, at the global level that the assumption of liberal democracy, there's there's this kind of thing that liberals get complacent very easy. I'm not talking just simply about political liberals, but the, the, the concept of liberal progress, people get complacent, just as we were back in the late 90s, you know, you right. had you had the economy was going amazing. You had uh, the Democrats were always winning elections in, in the late 90s. Tony Blair was winning elections in the UK. You know, it, it was like, yeah, we fixed this. We, we the third way we, we the, the whole kind of debate about socialism versus capitalism is is is, is defunct. We know where we're going. And, and you know, we, we were proved wrong in different ways. And I think what's happened now is almost the opposite. The people have given up slightly believing in these ideas of global norms or the idea that democracy is a natural endpoint of human society. So what we're seeing, as you rightly identified, is, you know, there are autocratic um, moves taking place in lots of different countries. And of course, they're all different. Every country has its own unique political culture, but there are some similarities. So you've got in Hungary, Viktor Orban, who is somebody who his own background, he was once a liberal democratic kind of center left politician. And he's converted Hungary into what you might call a kind of post-democratic state. So it has the trappings of democracy. They have elections, they have courts, they have a media, but it's basically, it is controlled entirely uh, by Viktor Orban and, and his party. Uh, you have a similar tendency in Poland, not as far advanced, but they're, what they're doing there is trying to completely politicize the court system. Now, of course, a politicized court system is something that, that is, is, has already occurred in, in, in quite, a, quite an extreme way in the US. Uh, and, and particularly the way the Republicans sort of manip manipulated the process around Supreme Court vacancies to ensure their majority, which is now no doubt set in stone for, for several decades to come. Uh, you know, you, you see, so these things have different features in different countries. You know, in Britain, um, the, 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 the right-wing populist government uh, prorogued parliament. They just canceled parliament for a period of time to ensure that a certain deadline that was falling to do with the EU negotiation would fall when Parliament wasn't sitting. Uh, in the end, that was proved illegal by our Supreme Court, but that, that in itself was highly controversial, that you rely on a court, which is of course not elected, to uphold uh, democracy. So I think we're seeing this tendency. And then of course, you have these two great autocracies, I don't mean great in a positive way, but in their power, Russia and China. And they are loving all of this because for years, they've been pushing back against this idea that democracy is a kind of natural journey for people to go on in, in human development. And, and they're kind of finally being able to say, yeah, we told you, you know, democracy is messy. It doesn't always work. You know, it, there are lots of downsides, whereas, you know, our system makes sure that everyone has what they need and, and it's a strong hand is what you need. Now, I'm not saying I agree with any of that. It, it's a pile of crap, actually, but it's easier and easier for them to make the argument. And I think that's where we find ourselves at the moment. 
So um, this is a good time to take it to take a little break because I want to talk about um, that. That goes into episode number two, which I want to talk about. So we're going to be right back with Arthur Snell of Doomsday Watch. Our world is more unstable than at any time since the height of the Cold War. And it's not just terrorism or conventional conflict that cast a shadow over the future. I'm Arthur Snell, and I've spent much of my career in British government service all over the world trying to stop bad things from happening. I've done election monitoring in Zimbabwe, counter-terrorism in Yemen, stabilisation missions in Iraq and Afghanistan. Now I'm back home watching it all unfold and what I'm seeing has got me worried. My new podcast series, Doomsday Watch, examines the looming threats that the world is not looking at. From the collapse of the petrochemical oligarchies that enforced a brutal form of order on the Middle East, to the rise of President Xi's aggressive China, to an impending second American civil war. That's Doomsday Watch, every week, with me, Arthur Snow. Find Doomsday Watch wherever you listen to podcasts before it's too late. Welcome to Radicalized, where truth survives and we got your back. To quote Mike Ness from Social Distortion, I think we're looking at a lot of sick boys. To quote Fugazi, promises are shit. <laughs> Radicalized is an investigative podcast on disinformation by Heidi Cuda, Jim Stewartson, High Fidelity, and Sean Carter. The first thing we can do is arrest Mike Flynn. How many people have been kicked off of Twitter by a Russian gangster? Yeah. Two thumbs. This True. guy. Radicalized, where truth survives. Follow us on Twitter, YouTube, and anchor at Radicalized Pod. Okay, we're back with Arthur Snell. I want to talk. I By the time people are listening to this, the China episode, which is the second one, is the China episode, is already run, right? Is that yeah. the second one? Okay. Tell me a little bit about what, what you argue in, in that. Because I, I honestly, me personally, I, I have a really good handle on Russia. I don't have a good handle on China. My, my yeah. thinking about it is that, and what gives me hope about China in general, is that at least economically, we owe them so much money that they can't totally fully destroy us. There's almost this symbiotic need for, for us to thrive, at least to some degree, or else we're never going to pay them back, which seems like maybe something that they would want us to do. So- What's your what's the argument in the episode yeah. about about China? So I'm going to start by explaining how we get into it. So one of the features of this podcast, which which I hope the listeners will find engaging, is that there's there's this line in in the George Clooney movie Syriana, which it, it's an old movie now, but it's one of my favorites. And everything is connected, and that's kind of an aspect of it. So of course, you know, you, we start with episode one with U.S. politics, and that's a very um, familiar terrain for everybody in the world, but particularly for your listeners, Greg, over there. Um, but the point about it is, is not to see these things in a bubble. So we've already talked about how, for example, the war in Iraq has affected domestic politics in the U.S. But at the end of the episode, uh, one of the observations that, that we make in the U.S. episode is that at a time of America turning in on itself because of the, the political tensions are so overwhelming. You know, President Biden, with the best will in the world, doesn't have much bandwidth he can devote to kind of wider global issues. And of course, he's, he's got the, the, 
the, the complicated congressional math as well to deal with. So that is a great opportunity for China because China can get on with doing what it wants. So then to, to go on, you know, what, what are we saying about China? What we're really looking at is China, it's increasing autocratic stance under one man, Xi Jinping. Now, China's never been a democracy. It's always had an autocratic system. But it is quite unusual since the Mao era, which, of course, now is, is several decades ago, to have one man with such a strong level of control. And Xi Jinping himself is a very interesting character. We go into his backstory, the, the story of his own family and how they were affected by the Cultural Revolution. But it seems that ultimately the, the product of a, of a turbulent childhood for Xi is that he thinks the only way you can run a country is by kind of extreme authoritarianism. And of course, in the modern era with the tech uh, tech enabled authoritarianism that they have in China, and of course they're very sophisticated in this field, uh, it's, it's the ultimate kind of surveillance state. But that's not just about inside China. China, uh, it's, you know, Xi Jinping go, seems to have got something from Donald Trump, which is he's going to make China great again. He wants China to be big on the world stage. And so this means in the immediate uh, sort of sense, it's about those places right on China's doorstep and who controls them and projecting his power. So he's already done that with Hong Kong. He ripped up the deal that was made when the British handed over Hong Kong. Hong Kong is now basically almost no different from the rest of China. You, the democracy is finished. Uh, there's extremely authoritarian uh, laws and, and the way it's enforced and so on. The next big question is Taiwan and the South China Sea. Now, of course, China has always laid claim to Taiwan. And historically, America has made it clear that it would take military action to defend Taiwan. Now, that's an easy thing to say when China is militarily relatively weak. But this is the big transformation. China is investing in its navy. It's investing in more sophisticated weaponry. It's investigating in its cyber capability. And so... What we look at in episode two is almost a kind of a scenario. And in fact, there's a great book that, that we, we features quite strongly in the episode. It, it's a novel written by a couple of Americans, um, Elliot Ackerman and James Stavridis. James Stavridis himself, a former admiral, and they wrote this book called 2034. And it's a, one of those speculative novels that it's like a, a future scenario where a war breaks out between America and China. Now, it's a great book. I'm very happy to plug it. It's not my book, but um, it's that's a really interesting framework to look at. Is that there, are there credible circumstances in which America and China would find themselves at war over the South China Sea? And of course, what are the implications of that? You know, China is such a big, important country. It's right now we've got the uh, climate summit going on in Glasgow. As we all know, we're not going to deal with with global warming if if we don't deal if we don't find a way to involve China in that. So these are like really complicated questions, and it kind of comes down to: Do you give the Chinese what they want in the South China Sea if it means that you can deal with them on other things, on other really big complicated questions like climate change? And that's the hard question at the heart of the episode. That's interesting. I I, I look at it with China you know, it's hard not to look at what's happened in Ukraine right now and, yeah. and draw the and draw the parallel to China. I mean, Putin invaded Crimea and we did nothing and we yeah. were bound. I mean, in I think 94, um, Ukraine gave up its nuclear uh, arms to us and to Russia. And one of the one of the, one of the agreements why they did it was that we would protect them. We being the United yeah. States 
And then when Putin came in and invaded one of their territories, we were like, yeah, now nah, we're good. So yeah. that and that was in 94. That's much more recent than whatever yeah. agreement we made with Taiwan, where anyone involved with that is either very old or dead. I, yeah. I, I don't think that, you know, if I'm if I'm she looking at this, I'm like, they're not going to do anything. They're not going to do anything. Why would. Right. And he's probably right. What would we do other than, you know, uh, sanctions on some of the some of his family or something like that? That's what we did well, with right. Putin in the in the Crimea. Yeah. Right. And I think you're probably right. I mean, if you look at where America is now, and I'm, I'm not, you know, I, who am I to say that America should sacrifice tens of thousands of its sailors and soldiers to, to protect an island in, 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 in the sea off, off China? You know, you can see why uh, you, you don't have to be Donald Trump to look at that and say that this is a bad deal. And so that's where it gets really interesting, because there was a time when you had this kind of softly, softly approach on both sides. There were Taiwanese politicians who were saying, you know, we've got to work alongside China. We've got to be more, we've got to find a way to, 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 to kind of bridge the gap. And you had the Chinese leadership was prepared to be a bit less aggressive sounding, a bit less um, confrontational. And you could, it was easy to imagine a scenario where under some complex international agreement, the whole thing would be resolved, this kind of long-term Taiwan question would, would be put to bed. But it's hard to see that now. The China is more threatening. And what that means is that in Taiwan, the more kind of nationalist, uh, high defense political movements, they themselves are, are rising up as a result of that. And so it's hard to see a, a way in which this unfolds, which doesn't involve some kind of conflict. But as you say, it's also hard to see America uh, committing serious military resources to hold that back. Um, so what does that mean? And maybe ultimately, you know, sometimes pragmatism reigns that maybe it, it is right to say, well, ultimately, in, in the big picture of things, it is more important that we don't have, frankly, what could become a nuclear war over an island in the South China Sea, than that we, we stand on on something that may have had its time. But equally, you know, do we then believe that China stops there? Because what's interesting is you've yeah. got the South China Sea and there's this dotted line, the so-called nine dash line, which China has drawn. And it, it doesn't stop at Taiwan. It, it's a lot more. So do we then say, well, OK, fine, you know, you can because as you'll know, they've, they've started building islands so that they can land their their planes in this sea, you know. And so that there's this very kind of expansive situation. And it, it's the it's the old thing of. Uh, at what point are you prepared to say, actually, no, you can't do that. You know, we have to draw a line there. And we haven't been very good with Putin at doing that at all. And in fact, you know, you mentioned Crimea. Of course, that that ship has sailed. Well, the Russians are still in the eastern Ukraine, as you right. know very well. And at the moment, with their proxies in Belarus, they're, they're kind of needling the Polish border with this kind of migration, this kind of created migration crisis. So, Again, you know, that, that is what happens as a result of, of letting Putin get on with it. So these are really, really tough questions. It's interesting the the first Gulf War, I I think that the, the Bush Cheney Rumsfeld crew, Bush the second, yeah. um, were like, why did we let Hussein stay? But I think in retrospect, that, that was handled well in that Hussein invaded a sovereign state. We said, no, no, you're not allowed to do that. We got an international coalition together, kicked him out of Kuwait, and that was it. And then he did yeah. not do that anymore. Yeah. And with Putin, as you say, we didn't do that. He went into yeah. Crimea. We let him do it. And now he's going to keep coming. 
you know, you go back to the Second World War and you with the, the, the Sudetenland and then it's Austria yeah. and then, OK, but, you know, Poland's and then that's it. You know, they're not going to stop. I, I don't think so. That would be the argument to defend Taiwan. I don't think I, I don't know. I really do, I don't have much confidence that we would at the moment. Um, more so when if, if Biden's there, if there's a Republican in office, I don't think that we, we bother. I think we would defend Japan. I, I think that would that would yes. be where we would draw the line. I think we would absolutely yeah. defend uh, Japan. It's interesting now, Poland. You've mentioned a couple times. I have some friends that are from Poland, and I think one of the one of the things that's interesting there is they've lived under an an oppressive an oppressive autocratic regime recently enough that the people there all remember how awful it is. Yeah. And there's a lot more taking to the streets in Poland than there is like here. Where you know, yeah. we only take to the streets if JFK Jr. is going to show up, not not if anything important <laughs> is going to happen, right? So uh, uh, we're just we don't we're, we're lazy. We've become lazy about uh, democracy. And you said before there is this this argument made by the Putins and Xi's of the world that no, actually, democracy is kind of sucky, and you know this is the way to go. Historically, most governments throughout recorded history have absolutely not been democracies, and not yes. at all. It's very, yeah. very rare that democracies flourish. Uh, if you make a big timeline of or, or do that absolutely. thing, where you, you know, make a yeah. make a clock. You know, it's like a couple yeah. seconds. We're, we're yeah. just the lucky ones who happen to be in that period of living in democracy. Exactly. So you know, it'd be very easy to to, to fall back into autocracy, which is has happened before when when states have, tr have, have tried democracies in Greece and in Rome and, and elsewhere. Yeah. So hopefully, you know, history doesn't repeat. Um, I want to talk to you about, about your country now and, right. and get the update, get, get the temperature of yeah. what's going on there. Now, last time we talked, we talked a little bit about Brexit and, and Scotland and, and the effect and, uh, you know, with the Queen and all of that. Now we're, 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 we're months beyond what is the effect now of Brexit there? Because I'm hearing things in London where there's there's legitimately like there's not stuff on the shelves and stuff like I don't know yeah. if that's true or anecdotal. No, that's correct. Yeah. Yeah. So what's happened? Of course, one of the things that Boris Johnson did very successfully in our last general election, which is 2019, was he said, look, we're going to get Brexit done. That was his his literally his his catchword, um, catchphrase. And and it worked. He he did well. He's got a, it's parliamentary system. He's got a big majority. You know, he's 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 sitting pretty. But it was basically, you know, not for the first time. He wasn't telling the truth uh, because the thing about Brexit is it's never done because what the, the an analogy of where Britain is in relation to the European Union is something like the analogy of the Bahamas in relation to the USA. We're a medium-sized country next to a huge economy. But actually, if you take the EU as a single object, it's the largest economy in the world, right? The largest trading area. It, it, is, it is the dominant sort of lump in that part of the world. And so Brexit is never going to be done because we are always, as a country, going to be trying to manage what is a very complex relationship with a hugely important trading partner. And it is not helped by the fact that basically uh, uh, Britain left the EU on terms that are economically dysfunctional. So you mentioned shortages. It's a real thing. If I walk into a grocery store, uh, they'll, they've started now. They, it's like a standard thing you see now. You see it, there's a little sign that sits on an empty shelf which says, 
you know, dear customer, we're having supply issues, you know, please bear with us. The other thing that is increasingly common is uh, at the, the, the gas stations, the, the petrol stations, uh, where it might be completely closed because there's no fuel or like three of the lines. So only half the pumps have got fuel. And why is that? It's actually very simple. Britain, not, not dissimilar to the US, has a lot of its economy relies on immigrant labor. And we've closed off the European Union as, as a source of immigrant labor. And of course, European Union encompasses some relatively poor countries, countries like Romania, countries like Bulgaria, the kind of place that if you are a truck driver and you come to the UK, you can make a very good living. And so those people have gone. So who's driving the trucks? Well, that's the problem right now. So we, we have created this dysfunctional uh, situation in our own economy. And then the other thing that we've done, which is related but sits in parallel, is the whole question of the Northern Ireland uh, frontier with the Republic of Ireland. So the Republic of Ireland remains a full member of the European Union, which means that Northern Ireland, as you know, is part of the United Kingdom, is now a land border with the EU. So although we're an island nation, we still have a land border with the EU. And that's where it gets sticky because we don't, the, the, the trade uh, agreement that we have now with the EU is not, is not analogous to NAFTA. You know, um, trucks cannot come and go in a straightforward way that you would expect over that border. And so that creates all kinds of tensions. And of course, Northern Ireland has had this sort of unresolved tension about is it part of Britain? Is it part of Ireland? That's basically a hundred year old conflict, which, as you know, particularly under the under Bill Clinton, you know, the US was very involved in the resolution of that conflict. So it that has thrown up the issue again. And, and I'm sorry to say that the that Boris Johnson's government has actually weaponized that in a way that I find incredibly cynical. They are they appear to be prepared to see a resumption of some level of political violence in Northern Ireland in order to feed the argument they're making to the EU, which is, hey, EU, you have to give us a better deal because look what's going on in Northern Ireland. But they themselves are kind of fermenting this by playing up the problem. So always like emphasizing the difficulties. And I know that some of the Irish American congressmen, uh, there's, a, I think, a, a Brendan Behan, maybe he's a, a one, a one of the Boston uh, um, house housemen, uh, you know, they're, they're extremely angry about this uh, in the US because ultimately the US was, a, was one of the guarantors of the so-called Good Friday Agreement, which brought an end to that conflict back in 1998. And, and we're basically seeing it get opened up again purely for, for the political advantage of the Brexit movement here in, in the UK. Is there any chance that Northern Ireland just declares independence and becomes its own and just says, bye UK, we're going to join the EU? Well, that's it, it is. There's a real chance because one of the one of the elements that at the heart of that agreement, which was, you know, Senator George Mitchell, uh, uh, Bill Clinton, Tony Blair, that was their kind of agreement was that there exists a mechanism, a, a, a formalized mechanism under which uh, there can be a referendum which would then decide the status of Northern Ireland. So basically, since that agreement, that whilst Northern Ireland is officially still part of the UK, it was kind of a grey area because, for example, if you were born in Northern Ireland, you had immediate Irish citizenship. The border had more or less disappeared. So it was kind of it allowed you, depending on if you wanted to feel British, you could feel British. If you wanted to feel Irish, you could feel Irish. It was kind of 
you know, by not defining it, it meant that the problem largely went away. But now what we've done is we've brought back the definition question by bringing in some element of a border. And so, yeah, there is a framework and it is it is not unrealistic to think that that referendum could take place. And of course, last time we, we spoke, Greg, we spoke about Scotland and their independence yeah. referendum. So you end up with, it's possible that the as the outcome of Brexit is that Britain shrinks back to England, which of course is you know that taking us back to uh, 1700. So when when the US was still a colony, so it it would be an extraordinary thing that Brexit, which was sold as this kind of make Britain great again, our own MAGA moment, turns into something that actually shrinks our country back to a much smaller uh, entity. Pre Queen Anne, yeah, no, that's yes. that's. That's great. Now, Boris Johnson, are, do people know that he's awful there? Or is it like Trump where you have people that just love the guy because... I think I think there is something of that. He's a very polarizing figure. I think there are people who really can't, can't abide him and others who think he's brilliant. I think the difference, though, possibly, is that... Um, I mean, there's lots of similarities. His, his background, again, is in the kind of light entertainment. You know, he was on on TV shows and he's kind of a funny guy. And, you know, in that context, a lot of people thought he was great. I, I guess the difference is, I don't think he's as cynical as Trump. I think, I think he's the kind of person that, that can walk away from something and kind of say, oh, I don't care anyway. Whereas you get the sense with Trump, you know, he, he can't give up, you know, he has to run again in 2024 because he can't, believe that it's possible that he couldn't win the election. So I think there is, you know, the characters are not not identical, but there are definitely similarities. And certainly, yeah, the way that people see him, you know, for me, I find it impossible to see what the appeal is. But yeah, some people think he's amazing. <laughs> what is he up for re-election? How does that work with the part with the prime ministers? Do they have to yes. call an election or yes. I, so, so they're basically it. yeah, they're basically call an election. The parliamentary system, it's kind of so you don't have the fixed terms that you, you all have over there. And so he he the, the last election was in 2019. The the only reason you would call an election is either you get to the end of your term, which is five years, or the political math forces your hand. And that won't happen. So I think we can expect. You know, he's still got a couple of years to go. They can call it early. I mean, it, it's an odd system, but so he it it's pro it's quite probable that there'd be another election in 23, I think. And I, and certainly at the moment, you look at the polling. He's not doing amazingly in the polls. Um, obviously, the coronavirus situation. There are all kinds of things that that would would make his polling lead suffer a little. But the opposition party, the Labour Party, is is for all that it, it had, the leader of it is seen as a as a kind of upstanding very I think even his opponents see him as a as a kind of upstanding guy he was the former chief prosecutor of of the whole country you know he's, he's like he's got a strong record Keir Starmer but he's he's just not a great politician he doesn't doesn't have that connection thing you know mm. he comes across a bit wooden maybe it's a bit like John Kerry's presidential run you know a lot of people respected him as a person but he somehow didn't seem to have what it took to, to be a president. And I think we, so I, I think it's, it's very possible to believe that, 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 that um, Boris Johnson would win the next election in spite of everything. It, it'll be interesting to see, because sometimes people emerge, you know, something yes, happens and all of a sudden yeah. there's somebody that you didn't know. And uh, yeah, let, let's hope so. That guy needs to. Uh, yeah, yeah, indeed. But it's, it's not over yet. You know, we've still got a few years to go. He, he needs to go away. Um, that, that, that's my opinion from this side of the, I'm like, I, we got rid of our terrible guy. Come on. Yeah, yeah, you did. You did a great job. You just need to keep him out. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're working on it. We're, yeah. we're working on it. So, 
I want to ask about um, okay, so we have this whole Ghislaine Maxwell trial that's that's going to yes. happen. I mean, maybe they keep saying, "Oh, it's going to be next. Oh, it'll be next month. It'll be I don't know. Yeah. You, you'll be on uh, on the show in six months, and it won't have happened yet." But um, yeah. is there any chance in hell that that Prince Andrew gets extradited to come testify? I mean, yeah, I, I, I think no, but uh, I I think no. I mean, I'm I'm not a you know I, this is not from a perspective of I'm I'm not a lawyer. I don't have any legal training, but. It seems to me that even taking away the the whole royal status thing, which you know is a kind of unique thing, just in general, very very wealthy, powerful people are quite good at resisting extradition. You know, there's always some other loophole and appeal, and you know, you claim you claim some kind of human rights protection and all the rest of it. And of course, you know, and and then you layer on top of that. You know, he's he's not he's he's the second son of the queen. So it's not like he's in line to take the throne. But there is he's not a private citizen. And I'm not saying I, I agree with this system or that, that it's right. But ultimately, he's not going to be treated the same as any other guy who had done that what he did. So I think it's very unlikely. But I wouldn't be surprised if someone cuts a deal and maybe there's a negotiation happening. I who do, What do I know? where he's he has to give remote testimony you know by video link or something or something like that where he can't wriggle out of it he can't actually just you know not answer the, the questions that he should answer it's going to be interesting to see and i wonder if it changes you know if if there's a new uh monarch in in the country not that i i feel like that's never going to happen either we're I, well, I, I, <laughs> she, well she she uh, although you know she's i think uh, i've this is embarrassing. I can't remember her exact age, but she's well into her nineties. Uh, for the first time uh, in my memory, she was actually unwell recently. You know, briefly hospitalized, and of course, you know, with with no kind of uh, ghoulish uh, sensibility at that age. You know, the illness can can get serious very quickly. So, I it it is widely said, and I can't explain the reasons that that Andrew is her favorite son. Now, you know, we might <laughs> question that judgment. But that is widely said, and and it is also widely said that Charles, who of course will will be king at some point, is is not very keen on his brother, and is particularly pissed off about this situation, as you can imagine, because it brings so much discredit on the royal family. So I think that's a reasonable point to make. If there were a different monarch, uh, would that situation change? I certainly think the kind of umbrella of protection that Andrew definitely gets from from the Queen would not be there. So yeah, that's an important point. And it's definitely going to be Charles, right? There's not going to be, I, at, at some point I heard some talk that he was going to just step aside and it was going to. Yeah. Yeah. I did. I think people sometimes sort of talk about that partly because I think a lot of people look at Prince William and they see someone who just seems better able to connect. And I don't know if it's his mother's side, his, that heritage. And of course his wife, uh, Catherine Kate is very, very highly regarded and seems to have a very nice manner. So people sometimes say that, but I, I don't think there's any, I think, you know, poor old Charles has been waiting like 70 years for this job. And I guess he, you know, you, he, he uh, deserves at least a few, few uh, years doing it. So I think, I think it would be very surprising if, if, if we, if we kind of short circuited him. Is there any, is there any mechanism there in parliament or anything to abolish the monarchy or is it, we're just going to have this forever, do you think? Uh, well, it's, I mean, I suppose technically, uh, that's a really interesting question, actually, because I was about to say technically Parliament could legislate, but the legislation is rubber stamped by by the monarch. So would they rubber stamp their own abolition? I don't think so. Um, I mean, I think 
the thing is, it's it's still remarkably popular. I mean, for sure. for people living in the world's greatest republic, you you might find that hard to believe. And uh, but it it is remarkably popular. And in fact, the Queen, in particular, partly because she's just lasted so long and kind of is is you know i mean she, she's a literally a veteran of world war ii you know served in uniform and and she's still in a job and and in that sense i think people people in britain find it hard to imagine another world and i think that's part of it that we just don't partly because of this unbroken history going back literally a thousand years people can't you know i'm i personally i, I i'm not i'm not really a monarchist but i i don't have a serious idea that there would ever be anything else you know we, we're not capable of imagining it i think yeah interesting um there hasn't been a coronation since what 53 it's going to be a really good That's tv right. when it comes on I have oh to yeah say. yeah i'm not I mean, a monarchist either but i i'm very curious to watch it though i have to totally yeah. yeah yeah it's a kind of you know literally a once in a lifetime event i guess so you know yeah yeah okay so doomsday watch now there's been the united states there's been china give us a little a little hint on what else you might cover on the show yeah. So we we kind of we try to kind of cover a lot of the big things that people are thinking about and then some things that people might not be thinking about. So China, Russia, jihad, um, the kind of the, the, the end of the oil age in the Middle East and then some other subjects slightly less obvious like water. And I'm not you know, we hear a lot about climate change, but we hear less about water, the actual fact that one of the outcomes of climate change is a is a scarcity of fresh water that is there for the humans to to survive on um and and then also we look at the kind of the age of disinformation the post-truth era and then the, the last episode will be an attempt to look forwards and even to find some positives so so hopefully by the end it won't feel like doomsday I, like I said, I, I, I did not get the sense, despite the title, that it was that way. I think it's really well done. I enjoyed it. Um, I urge everybody to go subscribe to this podcast. Wherever you get it's 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 a big podcast. You can get it anywhere. You just go. Yeah, it's, it's everywhere. And there's a you know, we, we've got a we've got a Twitter handle and, and stuff. And so hopefully it's easy to find. Yeah. And I'll put the link in the uh, the notes for this podcast. Um, Arthur Snell, it's always a pleasure. Thanks so much for joining me today. Greg, thank you so much for the opportunity. The Prevail theme song is by Matthew Fassa. Sofia Tereshenko provided the Russian introduction. Voice talent is provided by Tally Briggs, Signa Della, Stephanie St. John, Brett Petticord, Ryan Byrne at History Falls Apart, and me. Thanks to Allison Gill, Molly Hockey, Kanai Williams, and everyone else at MSW Media. Please subscribe to the Prevail website with updates every Tuesday, Friday, and Sunday. Your $5 monthly subscription funds the site and the podcast. Visit gregoliar.com to learn more. Thanks for listening. Drive safely. Don't forget to tip your server. Until next time, we shall prevail. MSW.